your seat if you can grab your Bible and turn to two places, Matthew chapter 26 and John chapter 18. So Matthew chapter 26, John chapter 18. We'll be reading first from Matthew's gospel, a parallel passage to what we'll be reading in uh, John 18, but we'll read a few verses from both Matthew's gospel and the book of John, and again, two parallel accounts of the same night, the same event, the same setting, the same scene, starting in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, and if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand, we can put one in your hand, so verse 36, Matthew chapter 26, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and two of the sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand." Turn over to John chapter 18, which is the portion of text that uh, we'll be in primarily, and we just uh, finished the 17th chapter a couple weeks back, so we start now here with chapter 18, verse 1, parallel to the same moment, same time, same evening. John picks it up here. When Jesus had spoken these words, these words being the prayer he just prayed in John chapter 17, once he finished that prayer in the upper room, when he finished these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I have lost none. Of course, that was in his prayer in chapter 17. 
verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again this morning. We are so grateful, Lord, to sit at your table to uh, take the Lord's Supper with you later this morning, but Lord, right now to sit at your feet to hear your words, the very words of the night of your betrayal. Lord, we pray that you would minister to us in a way that only you by your spirit can do. Lord, I pray for your help and your empowerment and your anointing and your strength and your wisdom, uh, Lord, that I could never give uh, your word, Lord, the emphasis or even the teaching that you would have me to have it without your help. So, Lord, I ask for your help and your strength. I ask you to speak to each and every person, soften every heart, open every ear, and, Lord, that we would hear from you. And, Lord, that we would not be doers only, but hearers, uh, not hearers only, but doers applying these things that you've given us, Lord, and we would leave this place more conformed to the image of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So earlier in the evening, in the upper room, Jesus had administered the Passover meal with the disciples. As you recall, he had washed their feet, showing them how they must serve one another, how they must serve all other believers. Shortly after this, Judas, he left the room to finalize his betrayal of Jesus. Afterwards, Jesus began to explain that he would soon be leaving to return to his father, but that he would someday be bringing them to be with him. In the meantime, he promised to send them the helper, the Holy Spirit, the one who would be with them and in them to help them and us be witnesses of Jesus. He taught them to abide in him. And in doing so, they would bear and we would bear much fruit. There's no other way to bear fruit unless we abide in Jesus. And in doing so, we become more like the character of Jesus, but there's also the fruit of new souls and new disciples coming to faith in Christ, just as they had done. Um, he had foretold them there in the upper room that resistance, persecutions, difficulties would come their way. But not to be afraid. Why did he say? Because he said, I have overcome the world. It's great when you're watching the news. So just remind yourself, hold on. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. Say it to yourself tomorrow on the way to work and you're in traffic. Jesus has overcome the world. He, um, lastly, he prayed for his own next steps and the coming hours and days that he would face, but also the years the disciples would continue in the world, that they would be unified, that they would be one, just as the Father and the Son are one, and that their lives would testify to the life and to the truth of Jesus, that the future generations, which would be us, that we would believe in Christ because of their belief and their faithfulness, even the scriptures that they would write, which we're reading this morning, and that the Father had kept them, that he would keep us, and now, as Jesus has left the upper room, he has left the upper room, 
He's now walked outside the walls of Jerusalem. He's crossed over the brook Kidron, which lies between the uh, Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And he's gone into the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus enters the garden, he knows that he will not be leaving the garden in the same manner that he entered. Nor will he be leaving that garden with the disciples, though he's entering the garden with the disciples. If you're taking notes, you see the time, uh, the title up there on the screen, What Began in the Garden, the Arrest of Jesus in Gethsemane. About 4,000 years earlier than this night in Gethsemane, so four, go back 4,000 years from the night of Gethsemane, God had created and placed Adam and Eve in a different garden, right? There, they knew the will of God, they had the command of God that they could eat anything they wanted in the garden, anything they wanted but one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know what happened. They chose to ignore God's will, God's command, God's provision of really anything that they wanted. And they did precisely the opposite of what God told them to do. But on this night, unforeseen and unrecognized by the disciples until later, Jesus, who is referred to in the New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 45, Jesus is referred to there as the last Adam. Did you, are you guys familiar with that term? He's called the last Adam. And by the guidance of the Father, Jesus places himself in a garden. But unlike the first Adam, he's going to fully yield to the will of God and do exactly what the Father commands. Amen? It's not going to be a mistake in the garden. It's going to be a reversal. And what began, or what begins here this night in Gethsemane, in this garden of olive trees, that's what it is, will be completed in another garden three days later. Remember, the woman comes to the tomb, and she thinks he's the gardener, right? So another garden three days later, just a short walk from the Garden of Gethsemane, everything will be completed. And all of what commences at, on the night of Gethsemane, what begins, is going to reverse everything that went wrong in the first garden. Fully reversing the curse of sin, the curse of death, for all that trust in Jesus. It, it, it reverses only if you come to him. If you're watching online and, or here today and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, it doesn't reverse until you come. I mean, in other words, the cure is there, but you have to be willing to take it. But this night was just the beginning. The surrender of Jesus here, it gives way to the sacrifice that will come in the morning. Look back at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. As you may have noticed, uh, John only uses the word garden. He doesn't say, he doesn't give it a name. He says he enters a garden, whereas Matthew and Mark's gospel as well, they tell us that it is the garden of Gethsemane, which corresponds to exactly where we know from the ancient maps and, every, and even still today, just over the brook Kidron. 
And I've had the privilege of being in the Garden of Gethsemane on two occasions now, the most recent in 2019, where we took a trip. Uh, there's uh, some of our group milling around there on, uh, yeah, the right-hand picture, you'll see some of the group, and, uh, and you've got these olive trees. A lot of them are newer olive trees, but there's also olive trees in there that are 2,000 years old. In other words, there's olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane today that were there when Jesus was there, or, or right around the same time. But um, we know that as Jesus entered the garden, that it was both an ordained and yet agonizing visit for Jesus. And it was not only a place of his prayerful surrender uh, to the Father's will, but also his surrender to those who had been conspiring for quite some time now to kill him. And as Jesus entered the garden, we know from other gospel accounts that he came there to pray and to be strengthened by his Father. He just prayed in the upper room, but he's there to pray again. He went from prayer to prayer. What does that tell us about our life? He went from prayer in the upper room to prayer in the garden. You need to go from prayer on Sunday to prayer on Monday. And from prayer on Monday to prayer on Tuesday. That everywhere you go and how you live, if Jesus prayed from place to place, you and I need to pray from place to place. But he went there to be strengthened in prayer by his Father, but also to be strengthened for just the excruciating hours to come, but also to pray with the disciples. And also, he went there to wait. Not a long time, because his captors would be coming soon, but to wait, and for his disciples to wait for him while he was, they don't even know what they're waiting for. He knows he's waiting for Judas to come and him to be arrested, but they were to wait with him in prayer. Now, the word Gethsemane, if you've ever uh, wondered, I wonder what that means, Garden of Gethsemane, it means olive press. The word Gethsemane means olive press. And so I put uh, up on the screen, there's a couple of olive presses. The, the, the gray one there is an ancient one that dates back a couple thousand years. It carved right out of stone. And then there's a, a one that's kind of a remake, newer model, but you, you can kind of get the point where you just take these big, heavy stones and you have a log inside the wheel of a stone and you push it around. This is the kind of stuff that, remember in Samson, when he was, uh, he was captured and they gouged out his eye, he basically was grinding a millstone, which is similar if you're grinding a, a grain or corn. But here, you're actually using that massive weight of the stone. You put the olives in there, and you press the seeds where the oil is, and to press the oil out of those seeds, and then you get that precious olive oil that comes out that was essential to lamps and medicine and perfumes and all kinds of things that was sold from uh, Israel all over the world to the Roman Empire. And so this is what uh, was in the... Uh, Garden of Gethsemane, there was definitely olive trees, of course, but there was also an olive press, hence the name Gethsemane, or olive press. Now, the Mount of Olives, which I've also put on the screen, I took this picture, uh, this one I took in 2019, we were there, uh, we're uh, down on the south, near the city of David, and kind of the south end of the city, looking back to the east, uh, looking to the northeast at that point of the Mount of Olives, and you see the Kidron Valley kind of runs between. you got the Mount of Olives um, there uh, in the um, looking east, and then the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives, but it's at the base, or at the north, 
It's, it would be at the northwest corner of the Mount of Olives. Um, the mountain was given its name because the Mount of Olives in those days was covered with olive trees. The entire, there was a few bare spots where, you know, you could sit and the disciples, remember they're sitting there uh, on the Olivet Discourse and they had a place to sit to look down at the Temple Mount. But for the most part, the entire Mount of Olives was covered with olive trees, hence the name, the Mount of Olives. And the olives and the olive oil uh, were all harvested from the trees on this mountainside there. Uh, at the base of the mountain, right down there, in that, again, in that, in that northwest uh, bottom of the mountain, uh, it was both a garden and a... John says Jesus went there often. Um, it would be a place of working olive press where they really would be pressing olives. But there's times when they're, the olive press, you know, at night, there's none of that going on. And, and it would be a peaceful place for Jesus to go. It's kind of like us going to Maimon or if you're in New York City, Central Park. It would be a place that because these, the beautiful trees are there and a place of quiet and the birds just chirping and stuff like that. So there's times when it's operational. There's times when it was quiet and Jesus would take the disciples there, converse with them and uh, no doubt pray with them and things of that nature. But Jesus was this night entering a place that was perfect in the name. He was entering a place of pressing. It was an olive press where the oil is pressed out and Jesus was entering. His spirit was pressed with the weight of the mission that only he could complete, only he could even finish this mission. No one else, if any of them tried, couldn't finish this mission. And none of us can comprehend the weight of the universe upon him that he was facing. He knew he would soon bear the sins of humanity. I don't even know how many sins I've committed in my lifetime. Does anyone here have a clue how many you've committed? I mean, we, don't, we, we know that it's thousands, if not millions. We don't even know how many times we have kind of sinned and didn't even know it. Jesus was taking all the sins that every single person from Adam till right this moment has ever lived. We're talking about trillions of sins that he was going to take upon himself. And as we just read uh, that Matthew recorded up on the screen in Matthew 26, 30, this is what Jesus said. We just read it. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. He tells this to the disciples, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. It was so heavy that most of us would have died under just the weight of the pressure that night. I mean, we would have just collapsed. This is where it's good to have a sinless Savior where he has a fortitude that's beyond our comprehension. But he, he takes Peter, he takes James, and he takes John. And he asks them to watch and pray with him. And he goes a little farther from where he has them uh, stop. He says, you guys right here. And he goes just a little bit further and we know from the text that he fell on the dirt, dirt ground there, fell on his face before the Father. They apparently don't last long before they're out like a light. Jesus, during the same time that they're sleeping, in verse 39, Matthew chapter, again, we read the parallel passages because John picks it up a little bit later. John picks it up with the soldiers approaching. Matthew picks it up even before that. But he says, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will. 
And we need to be praying that constantly to the Lord ourselves, right? Father, not my will, but your will. I want to say this, but not my will, your will. I want to do this, not my will, but your will. I want to go here, not my will, but your will. Now the cup where Jesus says, I, I, would, I would wish that this cup would pass from me. The cup in scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, but we see this again in the book of Revelation as well, the cup in scriptures often, and I would say most often, it symbolizes the divine wrath of God poured out against sin. It's considered a cup of God's fury to drink his judgment. I love this country, but if we don't turn back to God, we will drink a cup of judgment in this country. Amen. This nation will drink a cup of judgment. Nations before us have had to drink it, whether they thought they would or not. Israel was the apple of God's eye, and it had to drink the cup of God's fury. But Jesus, this is a greater cup, because Jesus is saying, I'm going to drink the cup of all the fury that God would pour out in hell and the lake of fire, I'm going to drink that cup on behalf of anyone that would come to me by faith. Does that make sense? So he was going to take the wrath of God upon himself. So he understood exactly this cup he was drinking. Jesus would drink this that should have been poured out for us, but will be poured out for him. Now, in this intense prayer, his surrender to God's will is not new. Never, if he's saying, nevertheless, not my will, not thine be done. This wasn't like Jesus finally surrendered to the will of God that night. No, no. This was not a new prayer. It was rather affirming what he had always come to do from the very moment he arrived in Bethlehem. Every day he was submitted to the will of God. Every day he was affirming that his will, uh, so his whole life had pointed to this. During this agonizing time in the garden in prayer, Luke who writes the Gospel of Luke? He also writes the book of Acts. Uh, Luke, as most of you probably know, and those of you online, Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. Uh, he'd come to Christ, and, but continued to practice medicine as best we can tell. Uh, he tells us, because Luke was a physician, Luke does several things in his Gospel. Because Luke was a physician, he records more of the healing miracles than any other Gospel writer. Like John used the word love more than any other writer, Luke records more of Jesus' healing ministry than any other writer. Luke was fascinated by healings because he was a doctor, and there were so many people that Luke couldn't heal. He's like, Jesus did it again. He did it again. I couldn't heal this person. Jesus healed another one. And so Luke was fascinated by that. But he also, as a physician, he noticed things or made note of them. And this particular night, Jesus, the pressing was so intense that Luke tells us that Jesus sweat, the capillaries burst, and he sweat great drops of what? blood. His blood, far more valuable than the precious olive oil that was pressed in that garden. A little less than a week earlier, you guys remember Jesus went to Bethany at the house of Mary. There was a, a, a container of alabaster. Well, the alabaster was the container. Inside the alabaster container was oil of spikenard. Remember, she broke the container and poured her life savings on Jesus. It was like over $50,000 in value in today's money and a little bit of spikenard oil. I had heard this recently, listened to another, pat, and I went and researched it myself, and sure enough, I didn't know this, but the spikenard oil that comes from 
the mountains of northern India, comes from the Himalayas there, and they would come across the spice trail all the way and bring it to, all the way dating back to the days of King Solomon and David. That spikenard oil, do you know what the color is? Red. It's crimson. It comes from a honeysuckle plant that only grows in that part of the, the Himalayas, and so that oil, which is the nectar, when they, it's very expensive because it takes a lot. You ever tried to get a little drop of honeysuckle? Uh, as a kid, you're like, you know, you're, I need a thousand of these to feel some sort of satisfaction. You know, you're, you're trying to get a tiny little, but that spikenard oil that it takes so much to fill a vial, and it's, but it, it's fragrance, so get, you can get the picture. A week earlier, he was anointed for burial. When she puts the oil on him, red oil runs down his head. Less than a week later, his capillaries burst, red blood runs out. The following morning, the crown's put a third time. It would run down. But instead of just, and then when he did it at, at, there in Bethany, the aroma, the perfume filled the house. Now the aroma of his forgiveness fills the world. As he heads back over to the three sleeping disciples, they've had a rough night. Jesus washed their feet, fed them, and taught them, and prayed for them. Their wife. This, felt, this is how parents feel, right? Your kids are asleep, and you have done all the work, and you're driving them home from a 10-hour trip, and they're wiped out, sound asleep in the back, and you're like, this is beats all. I took you to Chick-fil-A on the way. I did this. I did this. And, and, and you're sound asleep, doing all the work, and now he's even laboring in more intensity. They're sound asleep. He chastens them that they were not able to watch and pray for even one hour. And I think they had the intention to. They just couldn't do it. Their flesh was, they just kept falling asleep. We have a prayer meeting, as I mentioned, this coming Wednesday night. It's, it's for 6.30 to 7, well, it's to 7.45. But by the time we have announcements and work, it's not even really an hour. Um, we have the Ananias House prayer, which really is exactly an hour, from 11 a.m. to 12 next Saturday. And just click the video link. If you've not been to one, please you will be blessed, and God will love seeing you pray with the people from the Middle East that will be doing that next Saturday. But Jesus is still asking the same question. Can you pray even one hour? In your personal life, in corporate prayer, he's still asking the same question. Can you even pray? Now, that doesn't mean he's always asking us to pray an hour. There's lots of days that I can't pray for an hour. But there's days I can, and there's days that I, Lord, I'm, I, but I want to pray throughout the day, but you have a prayer closet. You have times that you're called to pray with the body of Christ. But he's still asking us the same thing. Come to me, commanding us to come to him and pray. Now, he told them in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. Remember what he said. We read it earlier. Watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You ever been really willing to do something, but you can't get the gumption? But you really deep inside you, I really want to do this. Yes. But then you look back a couple days later, I didn't do it. I had a desire to do it. I thought it would be a great idea. I think I would really be able to serve this person or go here or do, do, go on this mission trip or whatever it may be. Now, it's not a sin to be tempted. We're all tempted. Jesus was tempted for 40 days by Satan in the wilderness. He didn't flinch. 
didn't give an inch, didn't give a centimeter. He did not sin. We probably would have all failed within day one. But he never, ever yielded to temptation. It's not a sin to be tempted. Now, it's really dumb to put ourselves into temptation. So we should do our best to follow the Lord and say, Lord, I want to avoid areas of temptation. It's not a sin to be tired. We have limitations, to, you know, these human flesh uh, bodies that we have. We do get tired. We have issues of fatigue. So we know that we're going to have temptations. We're going to have times that we're tired and fatigued, and we might think that because we're tired that God really doesn't want us to do this, that, and the other. I've explained this many times, especially uh, when I've gone to prayer meetings when I know that I'm exhausted and I might have had a bad week. And like, Lord, I prayed a lot yesterday. And like, but, but, but then God reminds me, but you called the prayer meeting, so i got to go. So, uh, yes, I did. So I, I, but I'm exhausted. You, you're going to go anyway, and I'm going to give you the strength that I have because God has an unlimited reservoir of strength. But here's the thing. If we know that temptation is going to come our way, and it does, and we know we're going to get tired, and we will, it is foolish not to pray for God's help, right? He's like, pray that you don't, that's what he says. He says, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Also understand, Jesus is telling you, your flesh is really weak. You're going to collapse without my help, so you need to be praying. He's telling them in advance. Now, this will really resonate with them later after he goes back to the Father. They'll know they need to rely on prayer. They can't just fall asleep uh, anytime they want to. Sometimes they might have to say, I'm going to stay up a little longer and get on my knees and pray. Um, but it's only God's help that can overcome our weaknesses. Amen? Amen? We all have weaknesses. Only God's help to overcome. And the Spirit is greater, the Holy Spirit is greater than our weaknesses, which is great to know. I, I never forget, I was, I, um, I believe it was Dr. Charles Stanley who was taught, I think he told this story where he was talking about he met this missionary lady that he had he and the church there had been they had been supporting her for years and and she was older than him and I think he was already in his like 60s and she was like in the 80s and I've told this story before but but when she came off the plane you know and it was like a, she'd got off like a 17 hour flight and 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 she's older than him and she's got this huge radiant smile and he's hardly keeping up with her and he said how are you doing this uh, I'm like he goes, I've had a long week, and I'm exhausted, and you just, you've been on the mission field, you've been sick over there, you, you've had all these trials and things, and, and you are bounding with energy, and you get a big smile. She goes, oh, that's easy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. <laughs> and, I, and I get it from praying to God and talking to Him and all that stuff, and so it just, she goes, that overrides my physical. It's something, I'm paraphrasing, but something along those lines. And I'm here to tell you that God wants to show up in our lives with that kind of energy, strength, and power. But it only comes if we say, Lord, we're going to yield and we're going to become people of prayer. Just to start to say, Lord, I'm going to talk to you and find my source of strength from you. Now, Jesus leaves and prays a second time. So they fall asleep the first time. He leaves and prays a second time. He comes again and he tells them to wake up and start praying. Comes back, they're asleep again. Another garden failure. Like the early garden, not as bad as the early garden failure, but, but still a failure. He goes and prays a third time to the Father before he wakes them this third time because the third time he wakes them, Judas is on. He can see Judas and the officers coming and they're approaching with the soldiers. This is where John picks up his account uh, in chapter 18. Now, Jesus, 
as Judas and the soldiers are coming towards Jesus, they're entering into the garden themselves, coming out of the city walls, right into the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew how the entire night was going to unfold. He already knew everything, every millisecond was going to happen. But Judas, who each one of the four writers refer to Judas, Judas as one of the twelve, all of them are specific to call him one of the twelve, which is interesting because we know that from the time Jesus said depart, the rest of the night was preached and taught and encouraged and prayed for the eleven, not the twelve. Judas was already out of the picture. But they all refer to him one, as one of the twelve, and most scholars believe it's because they were, in, they were indicating the insidious nature of his betrayal, that he was one of them, but had always been a fraud, and now he was going to put, basically put the knife in Jesus' back. How insidious the betrayal was. And he comes towards Jesus, the officers and the soldiers they're carrying torches, they're carrying lanterns, because here it's dark in the, in the middle of the night. Uh, Matthew tells us, um, as Judas approaches Jesus, uh, Matthew tells us that Judas' first words to Jesus are, greetings, rabbi, or greetings, teacher. In each of the other gospel, uh, they tell us that Judas then gave a customary show of friendship which was a warm embrace and a little cheek-to-cheek -cheek kiss. Now, I grew, up in, I grew up in Maryland outside the D.C. Beltway area till I was like 12, and then I, my parents, after they divorced, I moved here to Richmond in, in middle school and, and lived here. And, 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 and back in the early 80s, Richmond was even more still just kind of part of the South than it wasn't even, it's much more of a melting pot now than it was even in uh, the early 80s. And then my wife and I, we both went to college, and I moved to Miami. Miami was culture shock for me. We, went, we moved to South Florida, and, and I lived in Miami. And when we started going to college there, and I was a minority in my college, I mean, almost everybody was Hispanic, and, uh, and it was really normative. Everybody would greet each other with this hug and a kiss on both sides of the cheek. And we got really used to it after a while. We're like, all right, this is what you do here. So, and you didn't even have to know people that well if they were friends with whoever you were friends. You were automatically getting this embrace and this kind of kiss thing on the cheek. And it was all over, I guess, South America. And, and, but this is normal in the Middle East, and so it's not as normal here. So don't just go try it anywhere in Richmond because uh, <laughs> it's just not as cultural yet. I mean, it may, it may catch on someday, but uh, to my knowledge... Because we've lived here now for, I don't know, how many years now? 17 or so, and it's not caught on yet. So, but we were so used to it after living there for seven years, it became normative. And, and, but it was a way of warm embrace, and, and, and similar in the Middle East, this is what Judas did, but, but it was fake. It was a fraudulent gesture. Uh, as he comes there and, and he gives Judas this greeting, it was an acting job. It was totally fraudulent. And by the way, um, it reminds us that people can not be as they appear sometimes. Keep that in mind when you're voting, you know, things of that nature, that uh, people can say one thing and be completely opposite of what they are saying. I look for what people do more than what they say. How about you? Uh, 
how do they really live? I mean, I don't hear what they say. I see their actions, but what do they, what do they really live? But sometimes it can be really, really difficult. You know, the apostles, they all thought Judas was legit. They, he was so hidden in his agenda that they trust he had the money box. He was the treasurer. They thought that when he left that night that he was going to help the poor. They did not have any idea that he was going to betray Jesus. His, his um, facade was so, uh, on the outward, it looked so genuine, but it was not. Jesus knew in his heart. So there'd be, if there were completely fake gestures presented to the Son of God, uh, we can know for sure that there will be many fake and fraudulent gestures all around us, in the world around us, in leaders, in politicians, in family members. Uh, that doesn't mean that we avoid people because, well, I don't know who's going to be real. Who's gonna, you, you, that's not up for you to, do, to worry about. You're just to love people as Jesus did and uh, let God take care of the results. But uh, here's the thing when it comes to Judas or anybody else. Lying and deceit is already natural to us. You do not have to teach a two-year-old did you get in the cookies and their hand is behind their back, right? No, I don't know. It's crumbs all over your mouth, you know. That, I don't know who did this. Uh, the dog did it or whatever else. Um, lying and deceit comes natural to our human flesh, and the, but the more a person lies and the more a person hides their intentions, it becomes how they live. And so we can see how some people, as I've seen this in some of the politicians, they, like, they don't even know how to tell the truth anymore. They've been lying for so long, it just comes natural. Before I was saved, I lied all the time. I, I, I can go back, I can tell you areas that I would lie. I just thought it was, I had, it was my right because how am I going to fix this situation but to lie about it? And Judas was living this way for so long. He had been living a lie at this point. Now remember that Jesus had said earlier in the evening that one of you, one of the twelve, uh, would betray him. He told Judas to go and quickly make the preparations or make the arrangements. And now everything Jesus said early in the evening is now coming to pass. And with a cold calculation, Judas kisses Jesus, and that was the indication of that's the one you're supposed to arrest. Now as Jesus is, um, as Jesus is standing there in the garden and the contingent of soldiers and officers are approaching Jesus... In verse 4, you don't have to look because I'm just going to read them to you for the sake of time. But in verse 4, chapter 18 here in John, Jesus says to them in verse 4, who are you seeking? And they respond in verse 5, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is the way I read the text and the timeline. It appears to me that Judas is with them. He, he comes out of their group and gives Jesus the embrace and the greetings, Rabbi, embrace and kiss but it appears that he steps back in with the officers after he does, which makes perfect sense because that's really the group he's with now. Yeah. He's with the group opposed. He's not with the 11. He's one of the 12, but he kind of steps temporarily, kisses Jesus, and steps back, and he is with the, uh, with the uh, officers. He's with the soldiers. But as he steps back, and he's now standing with the priest, the chief priest officers. And Jesus then responds by saying, they ask him, who are you seeking? He says, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. At this point, the entire troop falls backwards to the ground. Can you imagine the scene? They're holding torches. They're holding swords. They have gear. 
They are all there to arrest Jesus. Jesus says, who are you seeking? Jesus now I am he. And the first time he says, I am he, they all fall to the ground like you've rolled a strike with bowling pins. I mean, they've got fire on there. I don't know. Leaves catch fire. If you've got, uh, uh, you just see the scene. I've never really seen this redone by Hollywood movies. This is an, an amazing moment. Jesus says, I am he. Everyone falls to the ground. Gear goes everywhere. Things are dropped. There is zero doubt at this point. When Jesus says, I am he, and everyone falls down. Roman soldiers don't go backwards. They didn't have, they didn't have any kind of armor on their back. They were only made to go forward for Jesus to speak and his words make everyone collapse. There's no doubt at this point that Jesus has the power to protect himself. Amen. Right? This might have been a good time for them to say, hold on a second. Maybe this really is someone from heaven. Verse 7, there seems to be almost a pause, and Jesus is allowing them to collect themselves, collect their thoughts, perhaps even collect their gear, perhaps even collect their sinful resolve, maybe change their minds. And he asked them a second time. And after collapsing to the ground, this would have been a great time for them to say, never mind, we were here to arrest you, but you just said, I am he, and we collapsed to the ground. So that's kind of our clue that you have authority over us. But they don't. They double down. He asks a second time. He gives them a second chance to kind of assess their intentions, and they still double down. They say, we're here to get you, Jesus. Verse 8 and 9, Jesus knows his arrest is imminent. He's not trying to avoid the arrest. He was waiting for them to come. Affirms again that uh, he's the one they're looking for, and some scholars believe that in light of the fact that he just said, I am he, and they all collapsed the ground, that Jesus was not petitioning them to let the 11 go. He was telling them, you will let the 11 go, and just take me. And that may be exactly the case. We don't know. Uh, but as he prayed, he said none of them would be lost, except for the son of perdition, that the scripture would be fulfilled. Uh, but he also told them that they would all be scattered, and this is where the scattering will start. As Jesus will be taken away, these guys, Peter will kind of follow him up and try and get close. John will follow. Try, the others kind of vanish. Eventually they all scatter. But the scattering begins at this point or soon after this point. Then, But, but Jesus hasn't been arrested yet. They're, they're now coming towards him to arrest him. And as they come now to grab Jesus, Peter springs into action. Peter's a man of action. He grabs his sword. Even seeing that Jesus just spoke and they fell down, he's like, I got your back. And Peter takes a home run swing at the high priest's servant, his personal assistant, and we know no doubt he's going for the head. John is the only gospel writer to tell us the servant's name is Malchus. Everyone else tells us the, the chief priest's servant. Uh, Malchus, in all likelihood, is doing what any good boxer would do when a, when a stiff jab or right is to move out of the way of it. He's trying to avoid the sword that's really aimed for his neck. And Peter might miss the neck, but he connects with the ear. And as um, Malchus, his quick reflexes probably do save his neck, but the sword connects with his ear. It takes his right ear off immediately. It's a sharp sword. All the writers record this. All four Gospels say that his ear was sliced off. 
Luke tells us, Luke the physician again, Luke's the only one that says, but wait, it got put back on. Immediately, the other gospel writers say his ear was cut off and they move on. Luke says, no, no, I'm a doctor. This is the amazing, y'all got to hear this. Jesus picks up the ear. Luke's the only one that tells us this, that this is the fastest, most amazing surgery ever recorded. <laughs> you know when you see the healers on TV, you're like, I'll believe y'all when I see someone who comes in with one leg walk out with two. That's when I'll finally realize that you guys might have the healing power that you, that you say you do. Because if you tell me you healed a person with migraines, I can't see that. But if I see that they came in with one leg and walk out with two, that's the kind of stuff Jesus would do. Here's an ear on the ground. Now it's on your head. Everything's healed. That's, that's, that's what a healing looks like. But keep that in mind for next week because uh, you've got to be wondering what Malchus is thinking the rest of the night. It's the high priest assistant. Why doesn't he weigh in? We'll get to that next week. Here Jesus tells Peter, though, to put his sword away. Luke records him saying, permit even this. Matthew gives us this eyewitness account. It's the famous words. If you've ever wondered, but where did Jesus say he could call the angels? Here it is in Matthew's Gospel, 26, verse 53 and 54. This is where Jesus says to everyone's hearing, not just to Peter. All the guards, everyone there heard it. Do you not think I can pray to my Father and he will provide me more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? He's not trying to assert his authority or ability to get out of this jam. He certainly could. 12, uh, 12 um, legions, is uh, a Roman legion with 6,000 soldiers, so that's approximately 72,000 angels. Not that he needs any. One angel can destroy the world. 72,000 is massive overkill. So he didn't even go with the millions that he could shoot. I'll just give it 72,000. That would have enough, enough to incinerate the universe. Angels are quite powerful. But Jesus has not come to be delivered, but he's come to surrender. He didn't come to be delivered. He came to surrender to the men determined to murder him, to the will of his father. And in verse 11, he mentions the cup again. He says... Uh, this cup, the cup of judgment that's to be poured out, uh, mentions it again to the disciples, uh, that he has to drink this cup. It's the whole reason he came. That when you think about Christmas season, it, Jesus came to drink the cup. That's why he came. I mean, yes, the angels rejoiced over him because they knew that sin would be dealt with and death would be dealt with. But in verse 12, to kind of bring this to a close, finally, Jesus, with all the power he's displayed, he's healed an ear, he's knocked everybody over, he said, I can call the angels. He basically, you can see the scene, just resigns himself. I can see him just putting his hands at his side or his back, and they begin to tie him up. They begin to bound him, which is interesting in and of itself because in the temple sacrifices, when a lamb was put on the altar, they would bind it with cords. And Jesus is bound with cords here, just like the lamb, just as it was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7, led as a lamb to the slaughter as he's led out of the garden. Fully yielded himself to the will of God, all for the salvation of undeserving souls like mine and yours. And what began in this garden of olive trees was all in response to the sin that began in another garden four millennia earlier. Jesus bringing the great reverse to the great curse. Amen? He left the garden that night bound for you and me.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again. It never seems to be enough, but Lord, we thank you for giving your life a ransom for our sins. That you came not to be delivered. You could have delivered yourself. You could have called 72,000. You could have called 72 million angels. But Lord, you were there to suffer and drink the cup of the wrath of God for our sins. And Lord, as we're going to partake of these uh, communion and Lord's Supper elements, Lord, we're doing so remembering what you did on our behalf because you told us to do this, to not forget such a great sacrifice that allows us to now live. Your death and resurrection allows us to now live. And Lord, we don't want to be negligent to remember these things. So Lord, even now as we uh, begin to worship and to think about these things, Lord, just uh, show us if there's any things that, Lord, that we're yielding to that you want us to give to you, that are yielding us to you and not to temptation and not to our flesh. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Gary,